See, we're not told we are to just follow blindly or to love God apart from our minds and apart from our thinking. We are told to love God with our minds. This is the Bobcast, a podcast exploring Reformed theology through the works of Herman Bovink. Hi there, Bob Squad. Welcome back to another rip-roaring, exciting installment of the Bobcast. Rip-roaring and exciting. Rip-roaring and exciting. Doesn't it just get you all riveted up in other words that we don't usually use to describe things? I think you need to lay off the caffeine. No, it's not the caffeine. It's the it's, it's the Mexican candy. Or that. <laughs> Andrew and I were talking not too long ago about Dutch candy. We have a friend that really enjoys those double salt licorice drops, droppies. This also being relevant because we are in Dutch Reformed churches. It is relevant. It's always relevant. Uh, this is our podcast. It will be relevant. Hashtag relevant. I think Mexicans and the Dutch at least share a commonality there that we both really like salted candies. One of the candies that I grew up with, Lucas candy, um, it's literally just salt with lime flavoring. Yeah, and then druppies are, they're black licorice discs covered in salt, and I suppose whether or not you like them is going to come down to where you land on licorice. I'm not a fan, never been a fan. I find it to be bitter and unpleasant. But to those who love licorice, I guess that's a thing. It is a thing. I mean, I, I, you know, I'm not against Dutch candy. We've talked about it before on the show. Dutch mints, love those, eat those all day. <laughs> Can't really get on board with druppies at this point in my life. I guess I'm not far enough along in my sanctification. <laughs> that's right. But uh, the author of your faith shall uh, surely bring it to its completion. And in glory, maybe you will like druppies. I don't think we actually said who we are and what we're doing here. Well, if they're on episode 41, hopefully our listeners know by now that I'm... We're on 42. Sorry. (laughs) Who are... Where are we? What are we? Who are we? (laughs) Hi. I'm Caleb Castro. I'm Andrew Smith. This is episode 42. Yep. Yep. Of Of Bobcast. And we've been talking about scripture. We've been talking about the Bible. That's a good thing to talk about for Christian podcasts. By Christians. I suppose. It's usually a good starting place. We're actually in the middle of a discussion right now on the canon of Scripture, and we're not talking about the Boom Boom canons. We are talking about the collection of the Holy Scriptures, the divine-inspired, infallible Word of God, and how the individual books came to be collected. So if you haven't listened to that episode, we're kind of picking up in the middle of that discussion, so you might want to go back and listen to that one first. But we did raise at the end of our last episode a few things that we might like to take up and consider. So the first of these is what about accusations of error in Scripture? What about when we have different manuscripts, different traditions of manuscripts of the Bible, and we stack them up against each other and they're not the same? How do we deal with that? That's a good question. Yeah, yep. it is a good question. What a question it is. And it's something that... Roll credits. And, it, no. <laughs> and it's something that we will be questioning and yes. talking about. So we've kind of begun to unpack this a little bit, but how do we deal with, for instance, discrepancies in manuscripts? 
So just looking, for instance, at the New Testament, as we've already talked about, the New Testament was written in Greek. Now, you might know, you should know, that in the first century, they didn't have computers. They didn't have printer. I know. Shocking, right? They didn't have typewriters. They didn't have printing presses. All of these things, all of these marvels of modern technology, they had none of that. So, Caleb, if you wanted to write a book in the first century, what did you have to do? Well, first you need uh, something to write with. Yeah, and what might that be? Well, that would, if I recall, well, you're testing my uh, going back here a little bit in seminary, but... I don't remember either. I was hoping you remember what the ink or whatever was. Yeah, well, typically you're going to be using something of, uh, if I recall, a quill or a reed. You utilize things like ink, and you're going to need something to write on. Usually this was either some compressed reeds known as papyri or papyrus. These were basically flattened out in dried form. You see a little <laughs> slice of parchment, and then these were leafed together. You had vellum, uh, an animal skin that you would have a very long process to dry out and stretch. That was a little bit more sustainable, but you would bond them together into a, a book type thing that you would call a codex. So they had uh, basically actual books. They had forms of, if you will, paper to write on, materials to write on. I mean, the thing is, they're doing all of this by hand. You have uh, scribes, often professional scribes that will work in these little schools and uh, you can come to them and say, hey, I have this scroll here. Can you guys go and copy it down onto a new piece of parchment for me or into a codex or something? And then you pay the scribes, uh, you know, they'll give you a certain rate by the letter or by the line rather. And the scribe will then look to copy it down as precise as humanly possible. But sometimes they make little mistakes. You know, sometimes they didn't write the character correct, and it looks like another character. Other times, as they're going from one line to the next, they accidentally omit a letter or even an article, like, a, like you know, the word the, if you will, in whatever language they're writing. Sometimes they accidentally omit words. It's a human mistake. If you've ever handwritten anything, you can probably relate to this, if handwriting is even still a thing. Do they still do handwriting? They What's still handwriting? Teach that? Well, okay. If by some chance you're an old dinosaur like one of us that you have not done all of your work in a computer. So if you've ever handwritten anything, you know you make mistakes. You might, for instance, if you have the same word that repeats twice in a short amount of time, you might just skip over all the text between and pick up. Or you might go back and repeat the same text over again. All these kind of mental mistakes that we can make while writing. Or we could misspell a word. We could forget a word. We could add a word. Maybe this thing we're copying is just like something we're writing. It's just like something we've heard or written before, and we might actually put something in there that doesn't go there just because from our memory it sounds like it ought to be there. All of these things are issues that happen with this hand copying of texts, and these texts of the New Testament are no exception. They were affected by these kinds of variations, so the result is... We have all of these manuscripts. We have a lot of manuscripts. There are thousands of manuscripts just in the Greek of the New Testament, spanning several centuries, different continents. It's actually the best attested ancient text that we have. Other ancient books, we have a few manuscripts, and they might date to a long time after. We have thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament, 
and then some date to even within just a few decades of original authorship. The problem is they don't all match up because of these various sorts of mistakes we've talked about. The thing about this hand copying is once a mistake is made, it doesn't just get made once. So let's say Caleb writes a book. I'm like, hmm, Caleb, that book's good. So I copy it down, but I make some mistakes. Well, then I take it off to my town and I'm like, hey, check out this book I got from Caleb. And so my friend's like, well, hey, I like that. I want to make a copy of that. So he copies it. He copies all of the mistakes that I've already made. And then he makes a few more of his own. And the result is, as we get farther away from the text, there are more of these variants that are introduced into the text. You know, you're talking a second ago, Andrew, about how many copies we have, say, of just the New Testament Greek manuscript. And I think that that's something, before we continue, that we really want to highlight here. I believe it's almost 5,900 copies of the Greek manuscripts. You know, the earliest manuscripts that we have, you said, can range in the 2nd century into the early 4th century. So, I mean, pretty early uh, and very close to the original writings. If we're going to say that the originals were somewhere between the 40s of the 1st century up to, I don't know, the 90s or so, which say roughly those tend to be the traditional range. That's only somewhere between 30 to 300 years of a gap between these copies. Aside from the Greek New Testament manuscripts, I could be mistaken in this, I believe we have somewhere over 20,000 non-Greek, say, Syrian or Ethiopian texts. Latin, Coptic, other languages that existed at the time. And I think the next closest work from antiquity is Homer, Homer's Iliad, which comes from the 9th century BC. The earliest manuscript we have for the Iliad is in the 400 BC. So, I mean, that's like almost 500 years of a gap. And we only have about 1,900 copies of the Iliad available. The differences in errors uh, that the Iliad has are a lot more significant. Like, they're totally different versions of the Iliad. Kind of like, you know, you have maybe like Pilgrim's Progress and like an original version in kind of more the Elizabethan English versus maybe new, modern, updated, young person's version of the Pilgrim's Progress. The point being... The consistency between what we say are errors or what people will will charge to be errors in the New Testament is a lot less significant than in a work like Iliad or other ancient works. There's not big differences. All of the errors or the supposed errors that critical scholars like Bart Ehrman and such will point to really aren't big issues. Yeah, that's the thing is there are errors. There are these textual variants. We don't deny that. But the fact of the matter is, despite these variants, despite these copying mistakes, the text we have is still rather remarkably consistent. The vast, vast majority of these variants are small and they don't really change the meaning of the text in any kind of meaningful way. Not only that, but we can take these various manuscripts, we can stack them up against each other, and we can kind of see what happened. We can look at like, okay, well, scribe probably did this here, probably did that there. That's how we got this variant. And from this, we conclude that this manuscript and not the other manuscript is the more accurate reading. But at the end of the day, I mean, we still have a text that is very well preserved. 
I've heard it described before as basically it's like we have a thousand piece puzzle and we have a thousand ten pieces. Like the original text is there. We haven't lost the original text. There just has been these copying errors. And so from that, we have to go back and we have to try to reconstruct what happened. Yeah, I think a practical example would be, you know, sometimes say someone like a biblical author like John in Revelation in Greek is kind of weird to read at times. You mean it's not all that common to be reading books about dragons and monsters with lots of horns and stuff like that? Aside from just the content, I'm saying that just the Greek in the way that the sentences look, uh, in the arrangement of the sentences, the, the we call the syntax uh, in the grammar, are not ways that, say, Greek would usually express something. Like, for example, uh, Yoda. Uh, you know, Yoda from Star Wars is uh, pretty famous for saying something backwards. Like, let's just say, for example, like, you know, little faith you have, right? So he'll switch, like, the, the subject and the predicate. Little faith you have. Well, that's not how we usually talk. And that's noticeable when, say, you're looking through a book. You see it and you're like, oh, that's kind of weird. Why would it be said that way? He must have not been good at Greek or, you know, made a mistake or something. And so I'm going to fix that. Well, that's what the scribes sometimes did. They would see something and be like, oh, that's not how you write that. I'm going to correct it. But it wasn't supposed to be written that way. Sometimes it's a stylistic thing that the author's trying to do. That uh, occurs from time to time. And sometimes a scribe will change a preposition, like say on instead of in. It's little tiny little things like that, but they're noticeable when scholars look with these various manuscripts and they can say, oh, that's not how this goes. We can tell that there was a, a scribal variant here and the original actually says this. So all of this to say, we have these processes. Yes, we do have these textual variants. We have these different traditions. At the end of the day, it doesn't undermine our confidence in the word of God. Like I said, we know we have the original. There is some things we have to consider as far as what of the text we have is actually the original reading. But again, most of this is not significant. It doesn't really change the meaning of texts. It doesn't really call into question the authenticity of the texts that we have. So you're saying that the word of God doesn't make these errors. It's humans that will make an error in transcribing during translation or copying. Sure. I mean, the same thing happens even now. We have printing presses and <laughs> like you can have Bibles that have typos in them. Once in a while, you might be reading an English Bible and you're like, oh, that's a typo. And then you can buy it at the outlet mall for a deep discount. <laughs> Have you done that? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> it sounded really specific. <laughs> I'm trying to think. There was something with the old Geneva Bible. Oh, I know what you're alluding to. It might not have been the Geneva, but there was an old... The Breaches. Well, the Breaches Bible was Geneva, and that was supposed to be that oh, okay. way. <laughs> but there was one, that a famous printing of the Bible, and for some reason they left out the knot in the Ten Commandments on adultery, so it said, thou shalt commit adultery. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> yeah, that matters. Yeah, that's obviously a variant. Yeah, and in just in an English reprinting of a Bible. So it's noticeable. So, you know, these things happen. It's human error. And yet, God has preserved his word. We can say with confidence that we have the word of God and we have the word that he has intended us to have. If anything, we should look at this stuff and it's not like, oh no, the Bible's corrupt or all that, but we can actually look at it and see how unified it is 
and how little significant change has gone on, and it should help to inspire confidence in God's preservation of his word. Well, I want to ask a question on that then, Andrew, to lead to our next subject here. So sometimes for Protestants, a question might come up from a, a congregant or whatnot that will have trouble with the question of authority. How can we be confident that they say, okay, yeah, I believe it's the word of God, but how do we know that there is total authority to say that this is the Bible? This is our Bible. How can we accept the canon of scripture as individual believers? Shouldn't there be someone that tells us that? Shouldn't there be some kind of big gathering of churches or, you know, some people that are higher up besides just the academics, like say a church, you know, like I said, church council or, you know, how, how do we get these things handed down to us? Well, going back to what we've been talking about in Bob Inc., no, we don't need any of that. The reason we don't need any of that is because God's word is God's word to his people. Christ's sheep hear his voice and they know it and they recognize it. We don't need a human to mediate to us or tell us what the Bible is because if we are God's people, we recognize God's word for what it is. It's authoritative on its face. And that's why when you look at these discussions in the history of the church, like for as much as Bart Ehrman and, and scholars of that like want to drive division and push this idea of diversity that didn't really exist, we can look at it and we can see God's people recognized God's word. Like I said, there was variation, there was discussions, but the consensus was certainly larger than the dissent, at least within the church. We've talked a little bit before about the Roman Catholics. What about the claims of Rome or even the Anglican Communion with the Council of Nicaea? Uh, what, what does Rome say about this stuff? Well, it's often been said, I don't know if that's a Roman Catholic theory so much as just a popular theory, that the Council of Nicaea is where we got the canon. And then people do with that various things. Some say, oh, yeah, the Council of Nicaea settled the canon, and uh, that was a good thing. Others say, oh, the Council of Nicaea settled the canon, and that's where everything went wrong. The fact of the matter is the Council of Nicaea did not do that. That's not what the Council of Nicaea did. That wasn't what it was there for. So the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD was largely focused on properly formulating the doctrine of God, the doctrine of the Trinity, one God, three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The work at that council later taken up in 381 by the Council of Constantinople, where we got the Nicene Creed we essentially have today. They weren't dealing with the issue of canon, and even then, they used scripture, but there wasn't really broad dissent by that point what the scripture was. They were all using the same set of books. At least for Rome, their claim, I think, is largely consistent then with their view of the Bible and, and the church, the relationship between the two. The church is essentially the infallible doctrinal uh, authority. They are the interpreters of scripture, and it's for the church to receive that. The church receives the authoritative interpretations of doctrine from the hierarchy, from the voice of tradition, largely. The Roman Catholics do believe in the manner of inherent authority in Scripture, but they're saying that the church is needed to make that uh, voice to the congregations and to be known. And so that's where they're coming from on saying that then they were the ones that not just recognized, but established by their office as the basically continuing body of Christ on earth, uh, the Spirit of God, saying 
this is the canon. We've declared it. Perhaps a way to put it simply is for Roman Catholics, the church creates the canon, the church under the Pope, under the hierarchy, under the councils. The church has decided this is our Bible, this is our canon. The Protestant Reformed approach to Scripture with what we believe and confess about the Bible is the word of God and what we do as a result of that. It is the canon creating the church. Mm-hmm. So why do we have these things that we have? Why do we have this church? Why do we do these things we do and be what we are? It is because this is God's word. We are his sheep hearing his voice and thus we follow after him and we follow after his word. The word creates our church, not the other way around. Right, and it, so it's the spirit of God and the word that's essentially handing down the doctrine from age to age. Right. Whereas for the Roman Catholics, they would say uh, it, the church is uh, what's infallible and that's handing it down by its uh, officers, it's by its leaders uh, as the continuing church body. And we kind of get back here close to where we started about the role of faith, the role of belief. I mean, yes, you can look back in ancient history and you can see offshoot groups that went off and believed weird things, but they weren't the norm and they weren't God's people and they weren't hearing God's voice. They were the ones that wandered off into myths that made shipwreck of their faith. You know, groups like the Gnostics who imported other ideas into scripture that didn't belong, imported other texts or other early heresies, the Arians and what they did with the doctrine of God. Marcion, we talked about him before, wanting to discard the Old Testament. These weren't a diverse body of things that were Christians. There were the Christians that were believed the word and accepted the word as authoritative. And then there were the sects, the cults, the offshoots that deviated from that. You know, on that point, in the same way, sometimes you have sects that are saying that they know that their scripture is the scriptures because the Holy Spirit is telling them that that's the case in the heart. Um, you know, that, that that is also a claim that you can find in uh, Mormonism, in uh, Islam. You know, you can find that in various groups that will say, oh, the Holy Spirit was teaching me this. Mm-hmm. In a manner, they're not wrong, right? I mean, we, we have a Belgic Confession, uh, Article 5, that says, you know, we receive these books, and not so much because the earth receives and approves them, like Rome says, but especially because the Holy Spirit witnesses in our hearts that they're from God and because they carry within themselves, within the books themselves, evidence that they are from God. There is a manner in which we could say that's correct. But, I mean, what's what's some of the problems, though, say, in things like Mormonism or even uh, it may be some charismatic groups that say they hear from God, they get a revelation from him, and this is what he said? Well, one of the issues is, and we just talked about this a couple episodes, so I won't rehash it all again, but, for instance, with the Latter-day Saints, you have the problem that... The whole system is entirely built on essentially just accepting this body of teaching from Joseph Smith as true, not only in lieu of, but even against evidence. I mentioned before the issues with the Book of Abraham and how it was translated allegedly by Joseph Smith from an Egyptian papyrus, and it turned out to be fraudulent. And they still use that book. They still hold it as part of their scriptures. They've never really resolved that tension. Whereas when we look at the Old and New Testaments, I mean, we have real texts in real languages 
we can look at them and say, yeah, these are actual texts and actual languages. We can check them. See, we're not told we are to just follow blindly or to love God apart from our minds and apart from our thinking. We are told to love God with our minds. So not only does the Spirit testify to our spirit, but we can also see with our eyes and we can understand with our minds the things of God. And we can see testimony from Scripture, but also from creation and from providence that demonstrate to us that these things are true and that these things are real. And in this, do we say that, one, is the church without revelation today? Do we have a continuing revelation? And if so, where is it? I mean, we have the word of God as it is heard, as it is preached, as it is read. You know, if you want revelation from God, you want to hear a word from God, read your Bible. Now, I'm sure where we're going with this question is, so what about those who claim that God does continue to reveal things directly to people now? We've talked about this some before when we did Bob Inc. on Miracles. We talked about this idea of continuing revelation and does God give prophecy? Does God give tongues? Does God give these forms of continuing revelation to people in the church today? Right. I think the distinction that we're, we're looking to make ultimately in, in talking about this question from our position uh, in the Reformed tradition is what is revelation and what are the activities of the Holy Spirit? What does the Holy Spirit do? You know, on, on one end, we can say that there is it's not so much new revelation. The word of God is self-authenticating. The word of God, God himself in his word by his spirit reveals the things of scripture. He teaches us scripture. There's a difference, though, in what is the Holy Spirit doing now that we have this New Testament in his believers? There is regeneration. There is an inner testimony. There is inspiration in the uh, very broad sense of, you know, how the Holy Spirit works and, you know, influences believers. But aside from, you know, us praying or asking the, the Spirit's guidance in, in providence, is he actually giving us a new word that we say, thus saith the Lord? And we have to say, well, no. No, there was a purpose for what the Holy Spirit was doing, what God was doing in uh, having the books of Scripture essentially inscripturated. We talked about this process of the organic development. There was things that God was doing in those times in order to have the word set down and with the coming of the Spirit and power at Pentecost, dwelling in our hearts to guide and lead his church through the ministry of the word, the preaching of the word. But we don't have a new word, new books, new words that are added to it. You know, that would be to essentially say that the word of God, as it's been handed down through us and preserved throughout history, is insufficient. That cannot be the case. God's word is sufficient and sufficiently complete. And I think what these ideas of continuing revelation do, one of the things they do, they do a lot of things, can cause a lot of problems, but... Something particularly that it does is it collapses our ideas of wisdom and of providence. So, like, there's a lot of situations, you know, I've grown up in evangelical churches and stuff, where somebody will come up to me and say, God told me something. And it's typically something along the lines of a practical advice. You should do this with your life or whatever. The problem with that is, number one, it can be wrong. It can be fallible. But number two, when we elevate something like that to the realm of God told me, are we sure that God has really said 
Or is it simply more of a matter of we are trying to, you know, by the Holy Spirit living in us to apply God's word, God's revelation that we do have situationally in life? Are we using wisdom? Are we applying the scriptures correctly? It's a vast difference to understand that way versus saying, well, God told me X, Y, and Z. Those aren't the same thing. God does not speak to us, doesn't reveal things to us in the same way that he revealed things to his apostles, to his prophets. We again have Hebrews chapter 1. God has spoken to us in these last days through the Son. He's spoken to us by the word that we have. Now, how that might be applied in our lives can vary, and it can be different, and it's subject to various, you know, like I said, wisdom and providence. What happens to us, what goes on in the world around us, and in our lives, and then, well, how do we best live before God and according to his word in those situations? Yeah, that last point right there, too, you know, in those situations, what do we do in, you know, comparison with, say, the situations of the early church or during the times of the recording and then also inscripturation of the word? You know, for us today, the situation, the context that we're in is a post-apostolic church. And in this time, we are waiting for the second coming of Christ. And the church in this period can be entirely confident that our word is complete and that there's nothing in it that should have been excluded and there's nothing missing in it that needs to be included, uh, whether it's a pearl of great price or a uh, infancy gospel of Thomas uh, or a third epistle to the Corinthians from Paul, or if it's uh, the person coming up to you and saying God has said that he's going to have something uh, new happening in America and creating a new generation of believers and he's given us a prophecy for today that such and such will happen. What we have without doubt among Christians and Christians everywhere is that the word of God has been given to us in the Old and New Testament books in this collection, this canon of scripture and the church is to hold on to that. The church must hold on to that because it is the will of God, is the word of God, the teaching of God necessary for salvation. God is essentially the canon. God himself revealed to us for the purposes in which he's revealed to us. Salvation. God doesn't give you direct revelation to tell you if you should move to Alaska or not. Doesn't need to. (laughs) Now, there might be various reasons why you should or should not move to Alaska. There might be biblical concerns, biblical issues that you have to think through. But it's not going to be God's going to come to you in a vision and say, move to Alaska. (laughs) No. No, I I definitely hope not. You know, I, I live in the cold right now in the Midwest, and I don't think I can handle Alaska. That might be my limit. Not for the faint of heart. But if God said that to you, or if someone said it was God's will for a person to move to Alaska, should we ask, well, is that necessary? Is this, what you're saying, is revelation from God, this prophecy from God, necessary for his church and for his his worship in the promulgation of the gospel? Is it necessary for his church? I think that's a pretty uh, key point to emphasize. Yeah, is it necessary for salvation? Yeah, it's not private revelation. We're talking about for all the people of God. Right. So I think we've come to a good stopping point to draw chapter 7 of Wonderful Works and this discussion of Scripture to a close. We hope you've enjoyed it. We hope you've learned something. As always, if you have questions, you can email us, bovcast at gmail.com. Contact us on social media. 
Let us know if there's something we missed, something you might want to hear more about. Uh, we always like to hear from you. Or if you just like us and want to tell us that you like us. Or that you hate us and you want to tell us that you hate us. That's fine, too. Preferably the former, but if you must, we, we will also entertain the latter. So anyway, thanks again for joining us. And until next time, Toadzines. Toadzines. Thank you for listening to Bobcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and leave a five-star review where you get your podcasts. For the latest Bobcast news and updates, visit Bobcast.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Bobcast is a member of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Subscribe to the Society of Reformed Podcasters feed to hear more great theological content. Music is City of God by Rudy Manrique. We hope you'll join us again next time.